that, uh, that probably tends to be what happens when you tell the Holy Spirit you're ready for him to move, then it's often not quite as you expect. I, um, it's fun playing up here, and John, I hope you get to hear it today. The, the one thing that you don't really get to hear a lot when you're leading is hearing people sing and hearing people respond when you're in the middle of doing it. And it is a powerful thing to get to hear you guys singing. You know, like we, we know the, the truth that we're declaring in the songs and we're, we're believing it. But to hear you guys sing it is very sweet and very powerful. And it's cool because it, it you know, as we're asking the Spirit to keep our hearts right, it kind of, hopefully it tees us up well to receive where Jesus is going in Matthew 16 and, and Matthew 17 today. I have to admit, I felt really bad leaving off where I did last week because we talked all about focusing on the heart change, focusing on the heart change. That's what brings people to Jesus. And then I never really got to say, so what does it look like when your heart is focused on the right stuff? Like, how can you tell if your heart is actually focused on heart change and not on regulating actions? And, you know, how do we know if we're in a good spot? That, that would have been an entire another sermon. But that's where Jesus kind of goes today. And I want to just, I, I pray that this would be an encouragement for you guys. Cause, and, and I apologize, we're, well, we are, we're going on vacation this week. So we're going to get to go see some family in Michigan. I'm not going to be here next Sunday. You guys will get to have Bob. Bob Jackson will be back. Um, so I was very excited that he's He's doing well, and he's, he's, uh, he said he could come spend a Sunday with you guys. So I'm excited Bob is going to be here, but I'm a little sad because next year is, is our little church anniversary um, that you guys have been very patient and very gracious with us now for two years. Um, or as, as I told our BCM reunion, I have been the pastor there for 24 months, um, which sounds a lot longer than two years. But it's, you guys have been walking with us. We've been patient to go through the word. We've been seeing all these pictures of what is God really after, how it keeps coming back to the heart, how when the heart is right, what can't God do? And we've seen little glimpses of it, and we've seen, you know, hearts change. We've seen people change. It's been two really incredible years. And so I really want to just kind of, you know, as I'm reading the text, I was really encouraged to see Jesus kind of circling back to say, yes, stick with this. Yes, trust this. But, and, and this may be something like, okay, I've kind of heard Jordan touch on it. But it's, we need to continually be reminded of it. I, this week, I really needed it. Um, I'll get into that later. Th this week was a long week for us. Not because of anything really wrong happening. It was just one of those, it was a very heavy spiritual week. And kind of in light of that, I, I caught myself, Abigail caught me a couple of times saying some things that when I was reading our text, I'm going, oh, you know what? I'm literally missing what Jesus is trying to, to show. So um, maybe this is more for a reminder for me than it is for you guys. But we're going to be in Matthew 16 today, beginning in verse 1. We're going to cover all of 16 and a little bit of 17, but I'm going to stop about halfway through. So let's start in chapter 16. And as we're reading this, guys... 
there's going to be a shift that takes place. So see if you can catch it where Jesus is going to tell Peter at some point, now you should see something different. Okay, so, so pay attention for that part because we're going to see how can we tell if our hearts are in the right place. What does it look like? What does the Spirit do when our hearts are in the right place? And it boils down to the Holy Spirit changes our identity, changes our mission, changes our life. And we receive this through an act of surrender and trust. Okay? So beginning in verse 1, chapter 16. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, well, when it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, oh, it's because we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it then that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, okay, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And from that time, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Father, we open this morning declaring uh, the work that you do when you turn mourning to dancing, you turn graves into gardens, you make all things new. And then we ask you, Father, to come and say, hey, we are ready for you to do a new work in us. And then we get to keep singing, and then, I don't know, we, we felt it, Lord. We, we felt that you are here, and you're ready to do a new work. Um, Father, you have had us on an incredible journey together as we've walked through Scripture, as we've um, continued to reach out into the community, as we've been praying about, Lord, where are the relationships you've already given us to invest in, and what areas are you leading us toward? Um, and you've been consistently pointing us back to the same thing every Sunday. This is what I'm after. Father, give us a, a fresh reminder 
even if this we've heard this before, Father, encourage us, lift us, give us that that bedrock of trust that says I am willing to build my life on this and I do not need to be pulled and I do not need to be tempted or pushed into anything else. Lord, may we trust you at your word today. In your name we pray. Amen. So, chapter 16, verse 1 begins with the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to Jesus and they ask him to kind of prove who he is, which is kind of interesting they've already done this to Jesus right Jesus has already performed signs and healings and wonders in front of them so I'm thinking you know why now why now are they coming to Jesus and verse 1 tells us well they're coming to test him that verb test is usually translated as tempt in Matthew and it made me think, and I, I went back, and in chapter 9, the last time that Jesus really does a big sign or a miracle right in front of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all these people watching, they use it as a way to try to tell everybody, well, it's, it's because he's of the devil that he can do these things, right? So they're not, they're not coming to Jesus because their hearts are any different. There, there's no surrender. There's no trust that's there. What they're doing is they're trying to get Jesus almost to, to do something they can use for their gain, right? If we can get him to do something, then we can claim he's of the devil again. And they're kind of sensing, you know, people are not quite sure still of where Jesus is coming from and what he's attempting to do. So they're, they're looking to take some momentum from themselves. And this is why Jesus kind of responds harshly, verse 4. It's an evil and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign. Now, if you've prayed before asking God to give you a sign for something, right? Lord, I'm not sure what's going on. Can you send some encouragement? That is a different heart than what's going on here, okay? So this is not, this is not a scripture saying you should never ask signs of Christ. Of course, there's the passages saying ask and it will be given, you know, seek, knock. Uh, but here Jesus is pointing out there's, there's a reason you're going to always miss this. It comes in verse 3. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. And he points them to a familiar place. He says, no sign will be given to it, to this generation, except the sign of Jonah. Jonah is not a coincidence here. Jesus is equating what the Pharisees and the Sadducees are doing with what Jonah tried to do, right? When Jonah was given a message to go give to Nineveh, a message of trust, a message of surrender, so that God could change the people of Nineveh, change their hearts, Jonah said, nope, I don't want to do it. And I love the visual from the VeggieTales movie. He goes up, or Larry is playing Jonah, and he says, what's the farthest point on the map I can get to? And that's where he flees, right? And then even though when God finally gets Jonah to Nineveh, Jonah, some of the commentators point out, he still does the worst job of prophesying ever. He shows up and he gives like five words, and yet God still does it. I'm, I like Jonah. As an aside, we are going to go through Jonah in the next six months or so. So, I don't want to spend too much time there. But Jesus is intentionally saying, look, you guys know you've seen this before, right? You have often tried to take what God is doing and harness it for yourself. The Messiah will show up, and you will know the Messiah when your hearts are changed. This requires surrender and trust. 
And verses 5 through 12, Jesus kind of reiterates this pattern for the disciples. He calls them in verse 6 and then again in 11 to watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The leaven, those of you who have made bread before will understand this better than I will. But the leaven is, is kind of the ingredient that gets worked into the bread that if you don't put it in there, the bread doesn't rise. It just kind of is a flat mush. So Jesus is telling them, watch and beware of what the Pharisees and Sadducees say, right? It might sound really good, but watch what's coming out of the heart, right? Watch what's coming out of their mouths. Watch what's coming out of their actions. It may sound theologically good, but it doesn't look right. And the disciples miss this, right? They think, oh man, Jesus is just telling us, well, we should have brought some bread. This is the third time, guys, three straight weeks in a row, we're seeing some sort of miracle related to multiplying bread or just even tied to bread because Jesus says, guys, I really need you to understand this. Have you not seen with the previous two times I performed a miracle with bread that it's not about the actual bread, right? That I am showing up and I am after the heart. I am looking to call those to surrender and to trust. And he tells them, did, do you not perceive, like, did you not see that's what I was going after the first couple of times. And it's at this point we get to verse 13, and hopefully you guys were starting to see the shift takes place right here. Because Jesus asks a question to his disciples that finally gets them to the point where something different happens. Okay, What's the question that changes everything? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Even more directly, Jesus tells it to them in verse 15. Who do you say that I am? And we see Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What that should sound like, if he's calling him Christ, if he's calling him the Messiah, that sounds a lot like Jesus is our savior. And if he's the son of the living God, it sounds like he's got some power and authority. It sounds like Lord, right? These two things we've been seeing for the past month now. Peter calls Jesus Savior and Lord. So it's when Peter is in this place of knowing who Jesus is, right? And to call someone Savior and Lord, an act of trust, an act of surrender, now something changes. But Jesus says in verse 17, it wasn't flesh and blood that revealed this to you. What actually enabled you to receive this and is now going to change your life, Peter, that is a work of the Holy Spirit. And I love how, you know, they ask, you know, Jesus first starts with, who do people say the Son of Man is, right? And they say, well, some say he's John the Baptist, right? That the, the Son of Man is, is like the one who's preparing the way. And Jesus, Peter now says, but no, Jesus, you're not just preparing the way, you are the way, right? They say he's like the prophets, he's like Elijah, he's like Jeremiah, he's like one of the people who used to tell us redemption was needed, and now Peter says, no, you are the redeemer, right? That there is a faith, there is a trust, a surrender to Jesus as Savior and Lord, and now Jesus can tell to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar-Jonah just simply means the son of Jonah, which is an interesting little nod to a couple of verses ago. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, 
but my Father who is in heaven. So now a change can take place, right? We see surrender. We see trust. We see a faith in who Jesus is. Now, now the change comes. Whenever you see in Scripture a name change taking place, something big is happening, okay? The first thing Jesus does, so what is this change? What's this heart look like? Verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter. You are Peter. There's a name change. Peter's original name, his Hebrew name is Simon, Shimon, and it it means hearing with acceptance. Peter is a Greek name, Petra, it means rock. And so you get this really cool picture of Jesus telling Peter, you used to be one who heard and accepted, but now I'm going to make you into something we can work with, right? Now, not only are you the foundation I can build the church on, but you're the rock. You're now the materials, the stuff that I can mold into my image. Peter, now that you have heard, now that you've accepted, Peter, now you have become the rock. There is a a difference of identity in who Peter is. James puts it like this in his letter. He calls us to not just be hearers of the word, but doers. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. When we hear and we accept, then, then we can do. And so in the name change of Peter, we get there is a change in our identity. Who we are is different when our hearts have faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit is at work in them. But it's not just a change in who we are. Jesus also tells Peter the rest of 18 and 19, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I kept getting this imagery of if you've ever um, borrowed a car from someone, borrowed a car from your parents, maybe the, the first time that it happened and your parents hand you the keys, I mean, what a, what a big feeling that is, that I have now been entrusted with this car that's not mine, thankfully, um, but now I actually, I get to go drive, right? Some of you driving might not be that big of a deal, but to be handed the keys to a car or even a rental car, it's a big deal, Right? So Peter has now been given the keys. Peter, your mission is about to be different. You used to be one who had to walk everywhere. I'm giving you now the keys to the car. And what God tells Peter is that with these keys, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is a play on words where binding and loosing is the imagery of declaring things off limits and acceptable. So you're binding something, you're making it off limits, you're loosing it, you're making it acceptable. Kind of what my initial reading was, oh, it almost sounds like God's telling Peter, what you say is okay on earth is okay in heaven and vice versa. But really, what God is doing is he's telling Peter, Peter, it is going to be through you that I'm actually making reconciliation happen. And if you guys remember what happens to Peter in Acts, God gives him this vision of a white sheet and all the animals of the earth coming down. And God tells Peter, do not call unclean what God has made clean. 
God tells Peter, what I'm going to do through you is teach you that not only the Jews, not only are they meant for the kingdom of heaven, but also the Gentiles. So when God gives Peter the keys, he says, we are going to go do this reconciliation work together. Right? You have now joined me on the mission of bringing people into my kingdom. Peter's identity is different. Now his mission is different. And just as a little spoiler, when we get to the end of Matthew in chapter 28, when Jesus turns to all of his disciples and says, go and make disciples of all nations. Church, it's not, we're not too far off to read this and say, this is not just something for Peter. But for you and I today, when we have faith in Christ, when we have that surrender, when we have that trust, this is our mission here. Right, that we are now partnering with the almighty God to let our hearts be changed to his image and to work to reach others to call them to the same thing. So this is not just Peter's mission, good for you, Peter. This is something for us. And the last thing that changes is their life. Because right after this happened, we see verse 21, from that time, right, it is because of this this change in the spirit, this surrender, this trust. Now Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. And he kind of gives them the game plan moving forward. I don't know if you guys remember, but a couple weeks ago when we're in the thick of the parables, um, so I think this was chapter 12 maybe, when Jesus is teaching in parables, the disciples go and they say, Jesus, why are you speaking in parables? Right, like, why are you speaking in a way that is so confusing? Could you just make it plain? Jesus didn't do that at that point. Their hearts were not ready. The heart change happens here. The spirit is at work here. And now Jesus says, oh, now we can work. Right Now I can speak plainly to you. Now I can show you the things that I'm actually working on. So as the Spirit is changing the identity, changing the mission, as we're surrendered, as we're trusting, now Jesus can literally tell his disciples, this is what I'm doing. And this is where we're going. It's this, this picture, guys, of what takes place in our hearts when we're focused on what the Spirit is doing. Last week, we said we have to be focused on heart change. This is what the heart change looks like. Right? It starts with the heart that is surrendered and a heart that is trusting. And it changes who we are, changes what we do, and it changes how we are responding to things around us because we're actually starting to see with the eyes of God. Now, I paused there because those of you, if you look at verse 22, you realize Peter's not quite there yet. And I broke it off right there because if we continue the rest of the chapter, I want you guys to see that as Jesus is making this clear, the disciples are still taking a little bit of time to understand it, okay? And I feel like that's, that's where we, that's where I pray we are today, right? We see this. We know that this is what God is calling us to. We want this, but it is hard sometimes to figure out what that looks like. And it is hard to just keep saying, okay, God, I want this. God, I want this. There's a lot of other things out there I could want, but, uh, but we're, you know, there's, my dad used to call it muscle memory, 
right? You kind of have to go out there and do the same thing over and over and over again to train your muscles to do what you want it to do. So now we're going to watch the rest of chapter 16 and into chapter 17. Jesus is now working on the muscle memory of the disciples to just kind of hit this over and over and over again. So verse 21 says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Very bold of you, Peter. He began to rebuke Jesus, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Well, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah's already come. And they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, well, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, 
If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So as Jesus starts to work with his disciples, this same pattern keeps playing out. If you look at verse 22, right, as Jesus is finally starting to tell his disciples, here's what we're doing, Peter rebukes Jesus, right? And you could, you could almost give Peter the benefit of the doubt for saying, well, you know, he's, he's standing up for Jesus. He doesn't want him to be killed. He doesn't want him to suffer. He doesn't want him to die. This is the guy he's given up his life for. But Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, which is a a extremely powerful, almost sounds a little too powerful to be talking to someone that you're trying to work with that is starting to understand who you are. But he's telling Peter, oh, hold up, hold up. You just demonstrated a willingness to surrender to me, to trust me as Savior and Lord. Now, the very first thing I tell you isn't exactly what you want to hear. And your response is, no, Jesus, you must be crazy. How bold for Peter to tell Jesus that he's being crazy the second Jesus says something just a little bit that Peter doesn't want to hear. This is where Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh. No, your things are not set on the mind of God right now. Your things are on, your mind is on the things of man. And so he explains again, okay, okay. Let me remind you again what we are after. Let me remind you again what this heart looks like. And he tells the disciples in verse 24, if anyone would come after me, Let him first deny himself. If you're denying yourself, it kind of sounds like you would then be taking up a new self. So there's an identity change. Let him deny himself and take up his cross. Well, if you weren't already carrying a cross, now you're picking up a cross. Sounds like a mission is being changed. And then he says, and take up his cross and follow me. There is a new life, a new direction, a new way we live that's coming into place. Jesus says, Peter, Peter, if you are surrendered to me and you are trusting me, I'm going to change these things about you. You do not need to worry about what is happening to me. This actually has to happen for you to take up my identity, my mission, my life. Paul puts it like this in Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. New identity. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, a new life, a new mission, who enabled me and gave himself for me. As we move into chapter 17, same pattern, same pattern. Jesus tells, takes Peter, James, and John, they go up on a mountain, and he is transfigured before them. It is a really fancy word. I've never used transfigured in any conversation other than this place in scripture so if you've never heard it before don't worry it just simply means he's kind of revealing to them his true identity and it's fascinating actually john and i were talking about this that when when jesus is transfigured he's light he's bright and so if we're seeing jesus light and bright are there so now he actually gets to see 
who Jesus is. God affirms it, verse 5. And I love how Jesus works with them, right? Because partly they're terrified. They don't fully understand what's happening. But Peter, I love Peter's response. Peter says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Should I build us some tents, right? You and I might read that and and laugh a little bit, like, oh, is Peter going to build tents for a ghost? I mean, no, Peter's not really sure what to do. But what's so cool about Peter is he's saying, God, I really don't fully understand everything you're doing, but right now I'm with you, and like whatever you're doing, I want that, right? Is it this? Is it, should I be building some tents? Like, Peter understands, God, I am with you. This is good. Whatever you want to do, let's do it. The surrender is now back in Peter. The trust is now back in Peter. And this time, when Jesus is now teaching them right afterwards, they're able to understand some things. Verse 13, then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now they're starting to fit the pieces together. Now that they're surrendered, now that they're trusting, that identity, that mission, that life is starting to change. And it gets reinforced in the last little bit here, where a man comes, comes to Jesus, he identifies him as Savior, he identifies him as Lord, Lord, have mercy on me, heal my son. And then Matthew tells us, this man has actually tried to bring his son for healing before. I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. So Jesus just in the one of the many ways he's working with the disciples, is he's now going back to something that happened in the past. And he's saying, now watch what will be different now that you're surrendered, now that you're trusting, now that you're taking up my mission, my, my life, my mission. And Jesus, again, he speaks strongly, almost as if to convey just how big a deal it is that his disciples pick up on this. Verse 17 kind of seems like an odd response that if someone comes to you and asks you to perform a miracle for them, you say, oh, faithless and twisted generation. That sounds a little harsh, Jesus. He's not talking to the man here. He's talking to his disciples. He says, you guys. And and I, I, I almost, when I was reading it this morning, I was realizing it's almost as if he's pointing the disciples back to say, when you guys missed it back there, there were some consequences that happened, right? When we missed the heart, when we missed the surrender, when we missed the trust, when we weren't allowing the spirit to mold who we were, what we do, how we respond, something happened, right? This man's son did, was not healed. This man's life was not changed. Jesus says, we, we, we can't have this. We, we can't have you guys just willy-nilly going around and assuming you know what I'm about and what I'm doing. No, faithless and twisted generation. Here's what. Here's why you couldn't do it the first time, disciples. Verse 20, because of your little faith. When they weren't surrendered, when they weren't trusting, they could not grasp the depth of the work of the Spirit. Sure, as the disciples went out the first time, they may have been able to cast out some demons and perform some healings and 
miracles. This is actually something that John has kind of pointed out to me in Scripture, that there's, there's times when people are filled with the Spirit. They go out, and almost like they can clear the little levels, but they can't beat the harder ones. Because almost like in proportion to the disciples, you know, they got back in, I think it was in chapter 10 when Jesus sends them out the first time, right? They're filled with the Spirit. They're moving. They're able to do some good stuff. But now Jesus has had to call them back and say, guys, this is what I'm after. You cannot miss this. And now in verse 16 of chapter 16, now that they can call Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God, now that they've seen it again in front of them in chapter 17, this is who Jesus is. Now that they are surrendered, now that they are trusting, now the heart can change. And Jesus, Jesus then actually gives them one more opportunity to respond. Verse 22, verse 23 in chapter 17. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. But if you look at verse 24, the story just keeps going. And if you read the parallel accounts of this, of Matthew 17 and, and Mark, I believe it's Mark 9 and Luke 9, they all include that the disciples are greatly distressed, but that's it. So just last time, when Jesus told Peter this is what's going to happen, Peter comes and says, Jesus, you must be crazy. And Jesus has to rework with them and say, uh-uh, if you surrender to me, and you trust me, I'm going to change who you are, I'm going to change what you do, I'm going to change how you live, that's your new life, Peter. We're not calling me crazy. Now, Jesus again tells them some hard news. And they're distressed, but they don't rebuke him. And church, as we end with our application today, I think that is, that is a powerful place for us to leave off because we're seeing how patient Jesus is to work with us. And it is okay that it's, they're distressed, right? Jesus does not pound the disciples for being distressed. He's not saying, guys, we have been over this. You shouldn't even be afraid of what I'm telling you. There's a difference. They rebuked him the first time. They don't, right? When we are following, when we are taking up this heart change work, it's not easy. In fact, I was, I was thinking about it this week, and, and you guys may, this past week or this past month, you may have some similar stories, but there are often times where when you're in the thick of the heart work, and you are really trying to let God change some things in you, and you're really asking him to keep molding you and growing you, you often will see other people seemingly get what you're after, and it looks like they're skipping this step. Right, that, that when we are focused on the heart work, you see other people and they don't necessarily look like they're focused on the heart work. And they're getting what you really want, right? Like, okay, Jesus, if you get my heart in the right place, then I can go over here and do this thing. What? Why are they getting to do that? They, did they do the heart work? It, 
we see this happen, right? Someone gets promoted above you and you are like, I, I thought I was in line for that. So you, some, you have a passion for ministry and you feel like God's kind of getting you ready for something. And then you see someone else jump in and do it instead of you. I mean, I, it can be really frustrating when you are about the work of the heart and you're watching and you don't see other people taking up the same work seemingly, in my mind, they're getting ahead. And if you're like me, you've, you've had moments where you would say, God, I have been working my hardest to keep my heart right. How come I'm not seeing this result happen? If, if you're like me, you almost make God out to be the bad guy. Just like Peter, you rebuke Jesus. You say, God... I feel like, yes, this is good, and I've been trusting you, and then I'm not seeing the things happen that I want to see happen, but them over there, who doesn't look like their hearts are anywhere near right, they're getting it, right? Well, God, why, why is that not for me? You know, and I'm working my hardest here, and I really want to be right with you. The, the call to surrender and to trust is not a really comforting call. In fact, it's often really frustrating because you're, I, I, Abigail told me this week, she's like, you've, <laughs> you've been making the Lord out to be the enemy because you've been telling him, I'm doing the right thing, Lord. Why, are you, why am I not seeing something happen? And I love how when Jesus' disciples are growing, they're still distressed. Right? Jesus doesn't even, doesn't phase him. He knows that they're having a hard time, but they're coming around. And I wanted to read for you guys as we conclude today, Psalm 73. Because the, the author of this psalm, a man named Asaph, he is right in the thick of this. This place of God, I am really trying to be about the heart work, but so much around me I'm struggling with. Right? I'm trying to be about the heart work, but I'm watching people over there who don't have the right heart get what they want. God, I have the right heart, but my family is still suffering and I'm not seeing change happen. Right? When we feel like this, remember, here, just receive Psalm 73. Asaph says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. God, I know that it starts with the heart. And that that is the foundation. I know that. He says, but as for me, verse 2, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, I'm even watching, Lord, your people, his people, turn back to them. And they find no fault in them. Like, we're okay with this. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Right? That group over there is getting what they want. We must not really need this heart work to begin with. But Asaph says, behold, but I know those are the wicked. They're always at ease. They increase in riches. For all in vain. God, have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence? 
All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Have you felt that way, church? In vain I have kept my heart clean. But Asaph says, but deep down, I still feel like that was the right thing to do. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Verse 15, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Of God. Then I discern their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How are they destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors? Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish, I was ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. This is Asaph talking about himself before God. Saying, man, when my heart was saying, God, how come they get what they want? How come I'm not seeing the results I desire when I'm doing my best the heart? Like you're, you're pointing that finger right at God. It says, nevertheless, verse 23, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven beside you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And here's where he lands. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is just, just as Peter said, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. I have built that tent that I may tell of all your works. Seeing Asaph, guys, there's three questions we should consider. First, what are we envious of? When we go to God and we say, God, I have been working my hardest to keep my heart right, and I'm not seeing blank, whatever we fill in that blank, whether it's because someone else is getting it or we just haven't seen it for ourselves yet, there can be the tendency, if we're not careful, for that to move to envy. To say, well, they, they have the relationship that I've always wanted. They have the family situation that I've always wanted. They have the job I've always wanted. They have the ministry I've always wanted. They have whatever the blessing is I've always wanted. Asaph struggled to surrender and trust the Spirit, so his heart was not really getting to be molded when, verse 3, I was envious. Whatever we are envious of hinders the Spirit's work. So consider, if the Spirit changes who we are and what we do and how we respond, whatever we're envious of is going to keep those things from changing. What are we envious of? The second question, where do you turn to in your anxiety? Because Asaph says, when I thought how to understand this, like when I'm watching these things around me, it seemed a wearisome task. He said, this, I got no answers. I got nothing, Lord. I have no clue what you're asking me to do until I went into the sanctuary, the presence of God. 
then I discerned their end, right? Asaph was driven out of his anxiety to envy. You may be driven out of your anxiety to a whole host of things. But what snapped him out was when he was in the presence of God, right? Before that, he said, when I was bitter, when I was frustrated, God, I blamed everything for you. I said, you are the one doing this to me. How come when I'm working so hard, I'm not seeing, we throw the blame back on God. And yet, when he goes to the presence of God, he can then, verse 26, come to the place where he says, you know what, my flesh and my heart, they may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, and he is my portion forever. So where do you turn to in your anxiety? And the last question, what do we tell others? It's fascinating to me in verse 28, Asaph says, it's good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. When we are envious, when we are anxious, we don't tell of the works of God. My week this week when I was wrestling just with watching things happen and I, I'm watching people be able to work and minister in places that I've been praying for for a long time and I'm, I'm struggling with seeing, Lord, I'm, I'm not seeing it here. In envy, in anxiety, you can imagine Abigail and the kids got Wednesday was a rough day because I was not telling anybody of the works of God. I was frustrated. And that carries over into the way you respond and the way, you know, you are with your people around you. I love how Asaph says, man, but when we're in that place of surrender and trust, when we are able to let the Spirit change our identity, change our mission, change our life, we tell of the works of God. You know, one of the things we're doing together this summer is our neighborhood prayer initiative, where we are praying, asking God to just connect us with our neighbors and to just show us how we can build relationships with them, share the gospel with them, invite them to church, invite them into our own homes for a meal just to get to know them better, right? It is not surprising to me that I start to find those opportunities go down the more envious and anxious I am because I'm not ready to tell others of the good works. But when my heart is right, we're good. So church, if we want to be a church that testifies to the work of God, then, the, man, we will be a church that surrenders and trusts well through our faith in Christ. We will let the Spirit change our identity, change our mission, change our life. And so, as we aspire to this, let's pray today. God, blessed is the one whom thou choosest and callest to thyself. With thee is mercy, with thee is redemption, with thee is assurance, with thee is forgiveness. Thou hast lifted me a prisoner out of the pit of sin and pronounced my discharge, not only in the courts of heaven, but in the dock of conscience. Thou hast justified me by faith. You've given me peace with thee. You've made me to enjoy glorious liberty as thy child. Save me from the false hope of the hypocrite. May I never suppose I am in Christ unless I am a new creature. God, may I never think I am born of the Spirit unless I mind the things of the Spirit. 
God, may I never rest satisfied with simple professions of belief or outward forms or outward service while my heart is not right with thee. May I judge my sincerity in religion by my fear to offend thee, my concern to know thy will, and my willingness to deny myself. May nothing render me forgetful of thy glory, or turn me aside from thy commands, or shake my confidence in thy promises, or offend thy children. Let not my temporal occupations injure my spiritual concerns, or the cares of my life make me neglect the one thing needful. May I not be inattentive to the design of thy dealings with me, or insensible under thy rebukes, or immobile at thy calls. May I learn the holy art of abiding in thee, of being in the world and not of it, of making everything not only consistent with, but conducive to your life. Father, thank you for your grace toward us, your patience toward us. We trust that you are doing a work in our lives, that you are leading us to connect with others through whom you are desiring to do that work. And Father, we pray that in our faithfulness and our trust, our surrender to that end, we will not just see New River Fellowship grow, but we will see your name made great in the New River Valley and across the nation, across the world, Father, your entire creation is groaning to be made right with you. This is not a work that we can be lax on. This is not a heart that we can just try to skip forward past. Father, right where, right where our church is at, Father, I just I want to pray for our individuals who are here this morning. And just saying, Lord, we have come to you today with different different things going on that cause us to say, is this really worth it? Is this something I really ought to trust? Is this something I really can surrender to? Because God, it sure looks like we see others around us with other hearts pursuing other things, getting the same promises, getting the same blessings, getting just what we, what we truly see in your word and sometimes what we just really desire for ourselves. Father, we recognize to you this morning that there is envy and there is anxiety when we are in those moments. And Father, where we are envious and where we are anxious, Lord, we miss your Spirit's work. Father, we confess to you this morning, just right where we're at, the different places of our lives where we feel envy, we feel jealousy. We feel just anxiety, Lord, not even directed at someone else. We're just anxious. We trust you, Lord. And I, I almost wish I had read part of Matthew 17 today out of Mark 9 and, and Luke 9 because they record this man, when he brings his son to you, he cries out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Father, we do trust you. We do desire to be surrendered to you. We want to see your identity, your mission, your life made real in our hearts. We do, Lord. Help us in our unbelief. Help us in our unbelief. In your name we pray.